Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. After one of the most traumatic and turbulent weeks in recent British political history, Boris Johnson was forced out of office and the Conservative Party has begun selecting its new leader and the next UK Prime Minister. As we've seen uh, at Westminster, uh, the herd instinct is powerful. When the herd moves, it moves. And my friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's bumper episode, we'll be taking you behind the scenes on a week that brought Boris Johnson's time as Prime Minister to a rather bitter close. We'll take you through his handling of the Chris Pincher affair, those dramatic cabinet resignations, and the final moments when the Prime Minister realised the game was up. And later, we'll be looking forward to another Conservative Party leadership contest, how it will work, and the candidates already out of the block, and those who are about to announce in the coming days. I'm delighted to be joined by the very best guest to analyse a week that we're all still reeling from. Political editor George Parker, chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley, and special guest Hannah White from the Institute from Government Think Tank. Thank you all for joining the pod. Well, where to begin? Boris Johnson began this week under fire for what he did and didn't know about sexual misconduct allegations regarding Chris Pincher, his deputy chief whip. Pressure built up on the prime minister and then the cabinet started to resign, leading to a record number of ministerial resignations in one day. And then suddenly, by Thursday morning, it was all over. Steve Baker, the long-standing pro-Brexit campaigner, summed up the mood of many of Boris Johnson's early supporters about how they felt about the Prime Minister's decision to leave office. I wanted Boris Johnson to be an absolutely roaring success. That was my hope and expectation. So it fills me with sorrow that it's come to this. Uh, but I think it's absolutely the right decision. I will certainly always remember that Boris got us out of a terrible constitutional crisis, beat Jeremy Corbyn, far left, could have been a disaster for our country, and got a great future relationship. Just need to sort out the Northern Ireland Protocol. Just the Northern Ireland Protocol, very easy to sort out. George Parker, welcome back to the podcast. It's been quite the week for you and I. Let's begin... Monday, let's do this day by day. So the political week began with everyone coming back to Westminster and pressure building up on Downing Street about what they did and didn't know about Chris Pincher. So give us the background and how things started to take a turn for the worse at the start of the week. Well, Seb, you and I have talked about the ripple effects and really the ripple effect that brought down Boris Johnson started on the terrace of the Carlton Club uh, the previous week um, when Chris Pincher, the Deputy Chief Whip, uh, was drunkenly groping two men. And Basically, the thing that brought Boris Johnson down was his failure to come to terms and to be honest about what he knew about Chris Pincher's past as a sexual predator. And frankly, the government's position from the start was untrue. 
the position kept on shifting. And then by the time we got to Monday, this is the, what Boris Johnson knew about his past before he appointed Chris Pitcher as uh, deputy for February this year. And by the time we got to Monday, the government's position was shifting again. And people were starting to ask, hang on a sec, did Boris Johnson actually know precise details about what Chris Pincher had done in the past? And that quickly develops. The next day on Tuesday, when the former permanent secretary at the Foreign Office, Sir Simon MacDonald, Lord MacDonald now, made a devastating intervention, wrote a letter basically saying that Boris Johnson was told all about Chris Pincher. He was briefed in person about specific allegations. Mm. And that exposed everything that Boris Johnson had said as a lie. And I think the key thing on Monday, George, was that in the preceding few days before we hit Tuesday, number 10's line kept changing about Chris Pincher. On Monday morning, Will Quince, who was a junior government minister later to resign, was sent out to defend the government by saying the prime minister had no knowledge of specific allegations about Chris Pincher's behaviour before. And I think prior to that as well, you've seen Therese Coffey, the Work and Pension Secretary, on the Sunday broadcast rounds. And again, she was reiterating this line saying, you know, I don't know anything. Actually, one Tory MP sent me a gif of Manuel from Faulty Tower saying, I know nothing in response to Therese Coffey's broadcast round that sort of summed up this idea that the government was still closing ranks around Boris Johnson and protecting him from this idea that maybe he had known about um, Mr. Pincher's past behaviour when he was Foreign Secretary and particularly when he appointed him Deputy Chief Whip in February this year. Well, exactly. And the, the problem here was that the episode illustrated two inconvenient truths for Boris Johnson. One is that he's not very capable of telling the truth. And second, he doesn't learn from his mistakes because this episode was entirely redolent for all Tory MPs and ministers at Partygate, where Downing Street denied something. Ministers were sent out to spread the lie around broadcast studios. The lie then unraveled. They were left looking stupid and demeaned. And that was exactly what was happening to ministers over the last week, as they were sent out to trot out an untruth from Boris Johnson making themselves look shabby in the process. And in the end, that contributed to this wave of anger which ultimately washed over the Prime Minister. Well, Hannah White, let's now get to Tuesday. And really, the moment Bath had been at the end for Boris Johnson was that letter from Lord Macdonald, the former head of the Foreign Office, who had obviously watched these events unfold, watched these ministers. It's gradually changing the line from saying he didn't know, he didn't know specific allegations. And essentially, Lord Macdonald, who was a very senior civil servant, said, number 10 is still not telling the truth. That's right. And he went on the radio and, and, and talked about the contents of his letter. And, and I think the significance of that, with a former senior civil servant who would not normally play any part in, in this sort of political uh, situation, feeling that he really just had to go on the record and say, I was involved in this. I am aware that the prime minister was briefed in person about this. And so the claim that he didn't have any awareness of prior specific allegations and allegations which were upheld in that situation uh, against Chris Pincher was just not true. And the fact that he came out and said that, I think, really exposed that fact that the, the Prime Minister wasn't telling the truth. And just to go back to what we were saying before, I think Boris Johnson not learning from his mistakes, there were also a lot of parallels with the Owen Patterson case where, you know, it was it was somebody who, you know, the Prime Minister had taken a judgment that, you know, they wanted to give them a second chance. That might have been something he could have come out and said, well, you know, yes, there was this case, but I, I still felt that, you know, I wanted to give him another opportunity to serve. But actually, the lies and the and the saying, well, you know, actually, this is a different situation and we're, and we're not, we, we didn't do um, anything wrong. That's what got him in the end. 
Because, Robert, it is extraordinary when you think about it that the story about Chris Pincher's behaviour at the Carlton Club broke last Thursday, and then you had Lord MacDonald's letter on Tuesday. Given everything that's happened in Boris Johnson's government and all the untruths that have been said, why was it this exact moment that tipped everything over the edge? Was it because it was to do with sexual misconduct? Was it just sort of, you know, finally a a head of steam that that had come to fruition? What is it that brought it to this moment? I think it's a few things. I mean, it is the final straw principle. You know, if this had been the first scandal that hit him, he might well have got through it. I I think there are a couple of points here. The first is he was caught fairly and squarely, irrefutably not telling the truth. You had somebody in Lord MacDonald coming forward and saying, no, you did know about it. And I know you knew about it because I had the conversation with you. There was that kind of absolutely clear-cut evidence that sometimes he's been able to, to wriggle around in previous incidents. Secondly, I mean, both George and Hannah referred back to both Party Ape and Hannah White. This is just a pattern of behaviour that's been going on ever since then. And there's been three Downing Street resets, and each one of them fails to curb this fundamental starting point for Boris Johnson, which is to evade and wriggle and not tell the truth. If he'd come out at the very start last week and said, do you know what, I tried to give this man another chance because he'd said to me he'd mended his ways, clearly that was a mistake. It might not have been the end, but the first instinct to dodge and to evade was too much. I mean, there was an extraordinary moment in his interview on Tuesday, which as everything was collapsing, he says, you know, with hindsight, I realised it was a mistake to appoint him. You know, at that stage, having pretended that you didn't know it was as big a problem, to say with hindsight, you know, most people could have seen this one without hindsight. And I think everyone just looked at this and just thought, this is never going to get better. This is never going to change. He'd almost been toppled in a leadership contest a few weeks earlier. And people just look in this game, we can't have another year of this. It was the final straw. So George, that day of Tuesday in the press gallery, you could feel the tension building as number 10 didn't really know what to say. And I recall that lobby briefing the morning we were both listening to on Tuesday. And it actually began with um, a political editor of another newspaper saying to the Prime Minister's spokesperson, will you be telling us the truth today? Because it was clear that they had lied over the past couple of days. It was a very testy press briefing. And you've almost felt sorry for the civil servant having to do this because they were just having to defend Downing Street's unsustainable position about what they did and didn't know. But things came to a head at six o'clock when Boris Johnson went on the news, did an interview with the BBC, and as Robert was saying, did this line about hindsight and would have done things differently. But at 6.02pm, that all came unravelling when Sajid Javid resigned. Yeah, and we were watching the uh, interview, weren't we, in our office, um, Seb, on our television, and suddenly you could hear... The gasps of astonishment as the it was letter screams down the yeah, press gallery. Down the press gallery. So we, just give the listeners an idea. We worked down a long Victorian corridor, and all the way down the corridor, you'd hear the gasps and the wow as um, Sajid Javid resigned. And then, probably even more so, eight minutes later, whatever it was, when Rishi Sunak announced his resignation as well. And it was just one of those moments where you thought, this is it. And there was a sort of tension in the air because, of course, we didn't know, Downing Street didn't know, nobody knew if there were other ministers waiting in the wings also about to resign as well. So a moment of huge tension. And from that moment onwards, the die was cast and Boris Johnson was on his way out. And Robert, you could actually see that when the Boris Johnson interview was playing on the BBC, they were juggling what to do because the interview was pre-recorded, but then obviously it was overtaken by events. You still had Boris Johnson wittering on about sorry and would have done things differently with a flashing banner saying Sajid Javid has resigned and another banner saying Rishi Sunak has resigned. And it's interesting, I was told since then that 
Rishi Sunak did not let Downing Street know in advance that he was about to resign, whereas Sajid Javid did. I think it might have been a cursory text. But there was actually more anger in number 10 about the Chancellor's departure than the Health Secretary's. Why do you think that is? Probably because they briefed against him so thoroughly in the weeks and months before. He felt no obligation to tip them off and let them brief against him early. I, I suspect he just thought, that's it, I'm going they can respond once I've got my say in first. Uh, the Downing Street operation have been particularly ruthless towards Rishi Sunak, who suspects they're behind a number of his media problems of recent months. So I think he would have felt just no compunction about quitting, having his say, and that's it. And, and, and that's what he did. He knew that it would start the ball rolling. It actually took longer than we thought to reach the bottom of the hill, but his calculation was go, shock and awe. Now, Hannah, that night, Boris Johnson was still in bullish fighting mode and he decided to appoint people to replace those empty positions. So Nadim Zahari went into Downing Street and there was some discussion about he played hardball and said, look, if you don't make me chancellor, I'm going to quit and join Rishi and Saj and probably bring down the government. And there was some reports which were later denied by number 10 that they were actually going to put Liz Truss in as chancellor and put someone else into the foreign office. But eventually Nadim Zahari came out as the new chancellor, followed by Michelle Donlan, who was appointed as education secretary to replace him, and Steve Barclay, who was number 10's chief of staff, who was health secretary. So at that point, it felt like we're still fighting on. What did you make of those appointments? Yeah, well, it was interesting, wasn't it, that we then subsequently had the reporting that Nadim Zahawi had, had already started planning on his uh, leadership campaign. And obviously, having been now being chancellor uh, for a little while does no harm at all to his perceptions of him as a, as a senior player. So I'm sure he uh, will have fought very hard for that position. I, mean, I, I guess at that moment, Boris Johnson was hoping that, you know, he could stem the flow, that he'd found some credible candidates who were willing to step in. And if nobody else resigned, maybe he could hold it together. But I think, as we've been saying, it's pretty clear to everybody else that the writing was on the wall at that point. Now, at this point, George, we had Wednesday morning, when Nadim Zahoe went on the broadcast round to defend the Prime Minister. And I remember I spoke to someone in Downing Street late that night on Tuesday, and they were saying, we've got a class act as Chancellor. The Prime Minister was actually fed up with Rishi Sunak, not wanting to cut taxes. We've got a guy who really gets it, and he's going to go and get us on a new economic trajectory. So that was how Wednesday morning began. And Mr. Zahawi clearly made the decision, which is going to have big consequences for his future chances of being prime minister, that he would be better served by getting a bigger public profile. I'm sure lots of people will have heard of him who didn't know about him before, but also for just shoring up the government about being a team player and showing that at the moment of maximum peril, he would back up the government. Do you think that was the right call for Mr. Zahawi to, to take that job? No, I don't, actually. I think you could tell Nadim Zahawi regretted it as the as the week wore on and the Prime Minister looked more and more wounded. I think a lot of people thought it was the wrong thing to do to try and prop up what was obviously a collapsing regime, which was how it was seen, and then to do that broadcast round. Subsequently, Nadim Zahawi had to overcorrect his course by becoming one of the most prominent people calling for Boris Johnson to quit. So we then come to what has to be Robert PMQ's an incredibly bizarre moment that Boris Johnson, despite having lost all this and this kind of general sense that things were not going well, that he was still bashing on. And Wednesday was the day where we saw more ministerial resignations in one period than any other government. I think the Institute for Government did a tally. It's got an amazing chart that just shows the arrow going up and up and up. And it was bit by bit junior ministers, not cabinet ministers, but junior ministers started just to 
pull the plug one by one, starting with parliamentary private secretaries, parliamentary undersecretaries, ministers of state. And it just could feel the government kind of collapsing beneath Boris Johnson. And in that Commons chamber, PMQs, I was there with George. And you could just feel the power draining away from Boris Johnson. He was being laughed at by the Labour benches. The Tory benches weren't actually supporting him. And it just, you could feel at that point, this is going to be over very soon. Yeah, I mean, the the balloon was just deflating very, very fast. And Keir Starmer had a good PMQ, got in a couple of good jokes about the cabinet being the charge of the lightweight brigade. And I mean, actually, the cabinet did not come out of this terribly well, most of them, because they left the courageous plays to their juniors, to the PPSs, to the ministers. And actually, I think in the end, it was the resignation of huge numbers of junior ministers that really cut the ground from under him. Because at some point, you look at how the hell is he going to get a government that functions? There aren't enough people. People aren't prepared to take the jobs that he wants to, to offer them. And the sheer volume of it forced the cabinet into the next step. I mean, you know, Actually, most of them did not show a high degree of bravery until quite late in the day, until it became absolutely apparent that this was at the end. So, you know, the the hard yards, the hard territory was won by the people below cabinet, apart from Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak, who took the first step. And I think that's partly a reflection of the kind of cabinet that Boris Johnson assembled around him, people who were not fantastically strong in large measure, many of whom will have realised that they owed their cabinet positions to him and might well not get another one from anybody else. They hung tough around him while others were, were going out fighting. But yes, you know, as, as the day wore on, it just got, it got more and more comical and you looked at this, you just thought, I just don't see how he's going to fill this. You had you know, departments with, I think, one minister, one secretary of state and nobody else in it. The Department of Leveling Up got emptier and emptier. And people who you didn't necessarily think of as troublemakers for Boris Johnson. I remember when the levelling up ministers, Kemi Badenoch, Neil O'Brien resigned. Well, that's quite something because these are the not, not the people I would have imagined jumping early. So the whole balloon just deflated. And then Hannah, we had the utterly surreal spectacle of the liaison committee. So this is when all the select committee chairs gather to quiz the prime minister. And there was a big decision, is he going to turn up? Is he going to not? Again, I think the resignations got into the 20s and 30s by this point. But Boris Johnson turned up and did an almost masochistic performance where he just sat and took these questions. And I remember one point he was talking about the phasing out of petrol cars by 2030. And I thought, this is mad. You're not going to be prime minister by the end of the week. And you're talking about fuel policy for something that's going to happen in eight years' time. And during that liaison committee, the FT and many others reported that a delegation of cabinet ministers went to Downing Street and were waiting to see Boris Johnson when he returned to turn the gamings up. Incredibly, including Nadim Zahawi, who had been appointed chancellor barely 12 hours before. And he was waiting in Downing Street along with Grant Chaps, the transport secretary, Chris Heaton-Harris, the chief whip, to say, look, it's over, you need to go. But what did you make of that performance there? What does it tell us about Boris Johnson's character that he sat and did that with for basically no purpose whatsoever? As you say, it was truly bizarre. And, you know, that we even had one select committee chair popping out to text uh, his, his resignation and his call on Boris Johnson to go during the course of the meeting before he popped back in. And Boris Johnson, I mean, I think he, you know, it, it shows his his toughness and his willingness to sort of to put in the hard yards to 
to kind of to try to sustain his position. But it really was a losing wicket by that point, I think. But all this discussion about, you know, future policy things with everyone else sitting there thinking, well, you know, it's not going to be you, mate, who's going to be making these decisions. It really was bizarre. And, you know, given that he actually has a track record of, of not turning up to the liaison committee in the past, if he doesn't feel like it, it was surprising that he turned up. But I mean, fair play to him that he he tried to turn up and 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 defend his position and to appear prime ministerial, but it didn't really work. Exactly. Now, George, we come to what was the most extraordinary evening, which was Wednesday. So we know that evening that cabinet delegation was there. And I think the crucial figure was actually Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, who is as sole to defender as the Prime Minister as you could potentially imagine. She was there waiting for Boris Johnson and said, look, it's up. And I remember talking to you and we said, look, if Priti Patel is telling you the game is up, the game is definitely up. And at some point that evening, Graham Brady visited the Prime Minister. There was a meeting of the 1922 committee, which is the backbench trade union of the Tory party. And Graham Brady told Boris Johnson, look, it's up, you need to go. You've essentially got till Monday and we're going to have new elections for the 1922 and that will produce a slate of grandees that will essentially change the rules to have another confidence vote. So essentially, the 1922 tossed the decision back to the cabinet. And at that point, it didn't look as if the cabinet was necessarily going to fold. And then we had the most extraordinary thing. And I think when we look back with the lens of history, this will be the moment it was finally over. Boris Johnson sacked Michael Gove for literally no purpose, but for total and pure revenge based on what happened in 2016. It was a remarkable evening. And um, we were writing that story, weren't we, Seb? And we just having to keep rewriting the top of the story. And just when I was about to go to bed, the news came through that Michael Gove had been sacked. I think at that point, that was the moment where Boris Johnson realised on Wednesday evening that the game was over. As you say, he was given an ultimatum if he wasn't out by... Monday or Tuesday of the next week, there would be another confidence vote. He would lose it. He'd be humiliated. I think the Conservative whips are calculated. He was His support had gone down to about 60-odd MPs. He would have been absolutely crushed. So he had a choice. Either he went with a shred of dignity or he fought it out until the bitter end. And there were very aggressive briefings that evening from number 10, you know, that Boris Johnson was calling the bluff of the ministers who'd been in to urge him to resign. He was calling the bluff of the 1922 committee. Would they actually really organise another conference vote? He was calling the bluff of Tory MPs. I mean, it was ridiculous. And then I think he realised late on Wednesday evening that you know, the game was up. He did sleep on the decision. But I think the moment he decided to sack Michael Gove was the moment where he realised he was soon going to lose any authority to take any executive decisions. And if you're, if you're in Boris Johnson's position, you've got a few hours left to be able to make big decisions. What are you going to do? Sack Michael Gove, you know, it's, it's, it became darkly farcical at that point. And I think there was a, there was a danger. It went beyond that, of course. And that, that was why MPs were starting to worry. It wasn't just a farce. It wasn't just the Prime Minister clinging on. They were worried that this could then end up in quite a dark place. And some of the briefings overnight on Wednesday into Thursday's papers, the sympathetic papers, including one to the Sun, were said Tory MPs would have to dip their hands in blood to get rid of Boris Johnson. That set alarm bells ringing with lots of Tory MPs. And inevitable comparisons to Donald Trump clinging onto office. Yes, Robert. And I remember my phone, which was going very, very late with WhatsApps in well past midnight on on that Wednesday evening, was MPs very worried that he just would not go and how they would actually get rid of him. And I think the fact was that many of Boris's supporters, including Nadine Dorries, the culture secretary, kept talking about his mandate of 14 million people who had voted for him, which seems to obviously forget the point that we are a parliamentary system, not a presidential company. And I think 
that was the point at which, you know, it really felt the game was up, that they were saying that, you know, the Conservative Party doesn't matter, MPs don't matter, all it is is about Boris Johnson. And we've now since learned that really Boris Johnson went to bed on Wednesday evening, woke up on Thursday morning and decided that was it. He was going to go. There was no way out of this. And he called Graham Brady at at 8.30 on Thursday morning and said, right, that's it. I'm going to go. And then we got this Downing Street statement at midday. I never believed he was going to make it through Thursday as Wednesday night unfolded. I thought this was the typical bellicosity that you often see from Boris Johnson, you know, and, and, and George uses the phrase calling the bluff. But actually, Boris Johnson's bluff, when it's called, often turns out to be empty. I think it just, you know, there was a lot of fighting talk. But the truth is, they were looking at whiteboards and trying to work out which people they could put into empty ministerial posts. And they weren't coming up with names. And, you know, for all the tough talk, it is better to go on your own, you know, to, to, with a sensibility, set the phrase yourself, renounce your going, do your spiel in Downing Street rather than just be voted out by the 1922 committee. I think he thought, and he was within his rights, he broke no rules in trying to hang on till the end. He thought he could face his party down. And as soon as it became clear to him that he really, really couldn't, he was done. You know, he, he gave, I always thought that the comparisons with Trump were the kind of overheated talk that you get in, in these kind of crises. He just survived a confidence vote. He was entitled to see if he couldn't try and find a way to keep his government together. But in the end, the system held and he had to bow to the inevitable. Hannah, do you think we ever came close to a problematic point there? I remember there was a huge amount of talk about would the Queen get involved? Would Buckingham Palace have to sack him? Would he try and call a snap election? I mean, in retrospect, a lot of this looks completely over-egged. But was there ever sort of a real point of concern about the Prime Minister not refusing to quit when there was no legitimacy left within the Conservative Party? There was a lot of concern. I was certainly taking a lot of calls from journalists asking me what the constitutional position was and whether he could, in fact, call an election and what the situation would be with the Queen. I mean, I think the fact that everybody was doing that sort of doom scenario planning is a bit of a symptom of of everyone's recognition that Boris Johnson isn't necessarily a person who, when he's told, you know, well, you just can't do that, believes that. And, you know, actually, he's, he's prepared to test the rules and to push the boundaries. And so people were thinking, what are all the ways in which this might happen? But I think just as long as there was always still that possibility of the 1922 committee uh, voting no confidence in him, still sitting there, that legitimate mechanism for him being removed as party leader, if not as prime minister, I wasn't seriously concerned that we were going to get into that space. And finally, on this week of drama, George, what did you make of Boris Johnson's departure speech? I think it was very on brand for the outgoing prime minister, very much sort of said, as we heard at the top of the podcast, that it was saying that the herd has moved against him. And you can see the narrative that he will say for a lot of time that, you know, I won this big mandate, I defeated Jeremy Corbyn, I sort of got Brexit done, as he would describe it. But essentially, my party moved against me. So it's almost a betrayal narrative. Yes, I mean, Dominic Cummings, the former chief advisor, was making that point that it was a sort of stab in the back narrative the prime minister was trying to get out there, which he said would form the basis for countless Daily Telegraph columns and after dinner speeches in the in the years to come. I thought it was a very poor resignation speech, actually. I thought by Boris Johnson's standards, it was a very prosaic piece of work. But much worse than that, it was a, a speech where he accepted no responsibility whatsoever for any of the problems that were confronting him. And he sought to blame everyone else for the problems. He accused the Conservative Party, as you say, of acting with a herd mentality. But what he meant by that was they were all panicking in a mindless sort of way and trampling him underfoot, like a load of wildebeest or something. Ridiculous. He accused them of taking an eccentric decision to get rid of him. You know, 
when the government's battling a cost of living crisis, all you hear about is the fact that Boris Johnson's telling lies in Downing Street. There was not a shred of remorse or contrition or acceptance that he'd done anything whatsoever wrong. And I thought it was a very, very undignified way to go out. So Boris Johnson is now yesterday's man and the Conservative Party, as it always does, turns towards the leadership contest to replace him. Now, Hannah, let's just start about how this is going to work. We don't know the formal rules yet, but essentially the 1922 committee will meet on Monday to set out the timetable. And it sounds as if the parliamentary shortlisting stage of the contest, it's in two parts, will be done before summer recess with the first shortlisting vote taking place on Thursday. But we already know it's going to be a a pretty big field of candidates standing. We do. I mean, there have been a lot of people who've indicated that they're considering it. And it will be up to the 1922 committee, I think, to think whether they want to set the bar slightly higher for entry into the competition, just to make sure that everybody who's part of the competition has sufficient support within the party to be credible. Normally, you have a certain percentage, 5% to to become a candidate. You need a, a proposer, a seconder, and, and, and 5% of MPs. And then you would have to get 10% in the, in the first round and then not come last in any subsequent rounds in order to stay in the competition. They might want to fiddle with those figures, which would be entirely up to them, in order to produce what they think is a sensible slate of candidates. If they do do that, of course, that will be um, to the benefit of the slightly more uh, established, well-known people who have got out of the blocks maybe a bit more more quickly by being uh, braver in the process of uh, Boris Johnson's exit, or those who've been talked about for longer. Now, George, when we, we've been sort of trying to figure out what's going on here, but the general feeling is that the, the 1922 and those grandees who run this contest want a new PM by the time the House of Commons returns from the summer recess. That essentially means MPs produce their shortlist of two in the next two weeks. Then it goes out to the wider party over a, say, six-week period with a final vote, and then it's announced and the new PM's installed. But we know Boris Johnson is going to stay on in office during that period, despite a lot of MPs wanting him out straight away, given how he behaved over the past couple of days. Do you reckon he's still going to be there? And will he play any role or influence in this contest? Yes, I think he will be. I mean, I think there's been a lot said about Boris Johnson squatting in number 10 and how he should leave immediately. I mean, Boris Johnson is within his rights to remain as the interim prime minister until the Conservative Party have elected a new leader. And as we've discovered, there aren't many levers that the Conservative Party could pull to get rid of him, short of expediting the process of choosing the new leader. And I think basically most people have agreed that eight weeks is probably the time they're going to need to whittle down the shortlist and then have a contest in the country so that a new Tory leader and a new prime minister is in place by the time the Commons comes back from its summer holidays on September the 5th. So, yes, I think um, Boris Johnson will stay there. The only way, reason I think that wouldn't happen now would be that once we get down to the shortlist of two, if one of them pulls out, which, uh, as you'll remember, is what Andrea Leadsom did back in 2016 when she was running against uh, Theresa May. So, I think, I, look, I think he'll be there through till September. And he's made it clear that he will be a caretaker prime minister. He's not going to be taking new or novel decisions. So we'll see about that. Will he play a role in the leadership contest? I think the one thing that he will be trying to do and his allies will be trying to do will be to stop Rishi Sunak. You know, some of the briefings against Rishi Sunak have been pretty brutal already from inside number 10, including an extraordinary moment in the cabinet meeting. This was to Boris Johnson's so-called IKEA cabinet, thrown together at very short notice on Thursday, where Jacob Rees-Mogg, the Brexit Opportunities Minister, called Rishi Sunak the much-lamented socialist chancellor. 
you know, the idea that Rishi Sunak is in some way sort of a lefty committed to endlessly raising taxes, you know, but that's the kind of thing I think we'll hear a lot more of from the Johnson camp over the coming weeks. And we should say, Robert, that that new cabinet, the IKEA cabinet, was thrown together. I mean, when George and I heard that Greg Clark, the former business secretary, Theresa May, was coming back at levelling up secretary, it just was another surreal moment. But essentially, what Johnson has done is to fill those empty posts at cabinet level by people who are not going to run for leader or are not going to play a role in that, so they can just have a steady hand on the tiller. And I was told the cabinet officers prepared to essentially have a slimmed down government for the duration. Yeah, I mean, I think it was actually, after all the concern of what Boris Johnson might do in an, as an interim leader, I thought the cabinet appointments in that sense were quite reassuring. You know, Greg Clark, um, Robert Buckland, people with long cabinet experience brought back just to make sure that someone's in charge of their departments in case something flares up, not contentious, not especially factional, seen as a, a, you know, a link to the previous conservative um, regime. So I thought that was, that was actually quite reassuring and to me said, I don't think there is too much reason to worry about what's going to happen over the next eight weeks. I think Boris Johnson will preside rather than be highly active prime minister unless circumstances flare up. I think he's going to spend the next eight weeks focusing on his afterlife, his book deals, what he's going to do for money, figuring out where he's going to live, all those. And, and, and of course, as we now know, planning a wedding party with Kerry at Chequers before he goes. You have to hand it to him. These venues are not easy to find. And then not least because we're, Parliament's going to uh, rise in a couple of weeks, so there won't be time for him to do anything terribly dramatic in terms of, of progressing policy. So, I mean, I think at the best of times, Boris Johnson wasn't, you know, the, the person with the massive policy agenda that he wanted to progress beyond, you know, some headline things. So I, I think that that's right, that actually, you know, it's, it's quite likely that he will take a very chairman-like role over this period. Exactly. Now, obviously, the contest has not formally begun, but we've had two candidates out of the blocks. And the first was Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, who was one of the ERG Spartans, the, that group of ardent pro-Brexiters who were advocating no deal during the Brexit wars of 2017 to 2019. And she went on ITV's Robert Peston show on Wednesday to announce that she would run for leader, but wouldn't be resigning from government. If there is a leadership contest, I will put my name into the ring. Uh, I love this country. My parents came here with absolutely nothing and it was Britain that gave them hope, security and opportunity. And this country has afforded me incredible opportunities in education and in my career. Uh, and I owe a debt of gratitude to this country uh, and to serve as prime minister would be the greatest honour. So, George, Suella did a, a, her account on Twitter, Suella Bradman for PM, and her slogan is going to be hope, security and opportunity. And I think some listeners of Payne's Politics might see this and think that this is not a serious chance. But I spoke to one veteran Tory party observer who said to me, you should watch Suella Braverman very carefully because she will get the ERG Spartan vote, which is a not insubstantial number of Conservative MPs and for other contenders who will come on to, that could be a very difficult thing for them if she runs and she does get a lot of those votes. What do you make of her pitch? Well, I thought it was frankly ludicrous the way she made her pitch. I mean, she was, as you say, she, she announced she was standing for the leadership at a time when Boris Johnson hadn't even announced he was resigning and she intended to stay in the cabinet. So it was a very odd moment. I mean, I think you're right that um, we should watch out for people like Suella Braverman because I think at the end, if you've got the shortlist of two, there will be someone in there who represents the views of the Brexiteer wing of the party. And she could, well, end up being that person. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary, is, of course, a Remainer who's been trying to 
fish in that pool of votes. So it's entirely possible someone like someone like Sue Ellen Brubman could come through and face a more moderate figure, possibly someone like Rishi Sunak in the second round. Now, the other candidate, Robert, who's gone out of the blocks as of Friday morning is Tom Tuckenhat, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. And even before he announced, he made it very clear he's standing on a platform of a clean break with the Johnson era. It's not a secret that I've been thinking about this and I've been talking to people about the sort of things that the country needs, you know, the rebirth of trust, the renewal of the economy and, and, and the restart, you know, clean restart that we all need. Do you think Tugginhead has much of a chance, Rob, given the fact that he was obviously a very ardent Remainer, has never served in government, doesn't have any ministerial experience, but on the other hand... If the party feels the way that Johnson has acted over the past couple of days does need that clean start that he was talking about, maybe he could do a little bit better than just sort of drifting away. I find it hard to believe he makes it in the end. He does offer an attractive figure, but I think both he and indeed Suella Brothman, the, the, the problem that both pose is eating into the votes of those who might stand a better chance. You know, why go for Tom Tugendhat if you think you might be able to go for Ben Wallace? Uh, why go for Suella Braverman if there are other Brexiters who might stand a better chance of winning? So I think, you know, unless they get some dramatically powerful show in the first round, I think it's quite hard to see them staying the course against people who've got more experience and probably more cred within the party at this moment. I don't entirely write off Suella Braverman for the reasons that George has given, but my instinct is that, you know, the next leader is, is is someone who was in the cabinet at least until the beginning of this week. Well, George, we managed to witness on Thursday evening what is probably the first formal event of the leadership contest, which was the Spectator magazine Summer Party, which is uh, the in-house journal of the Tory party, which I used to work at many years ago. And that party was in a packed out Westminster garden, almost like sardine levels of people in there. And you could see two of the most prominent candidates already working hard, the media political class. One was Rishi Sunak, who is there, tireless, looking very relaxed, talking to broadcasters, MPs, you name it. And the second was the new Chancellor, Nadim Zahawi, who also turned up and was doing similar things. Based on those two, what are their chances? Well, I thought there was quite a strong Rishi vibe, I would say, at that spectator party. I would agree. Um, talking to people, it, the conversation kept on coming back to him. Look, I mean, there are problems with Rishi Sunak. He's often shown himself to be not particularly experienced or even sometimes particularly good at politics. Of course, he has problems with his uh, wife's non-dom status, his green card. But you keep coming back to the point, you know, is he someone who would cause the Labour Party problems? The answer to that is probably yes. The Tory right will accuse him of being a tax-loving Chancellor, and I'm sure Nadim Zahawi will be making that point. In fact, he's already made the point he wants to reverse some of the tax rises that Rishi Sunak's introduced. But I think Rishi Sunak has a plausible case. He will say, look, like Margaret Thatcher, he's a fiscal conservative. He believes in low taxes and a small estate. You've got to get the public finances under control first. That's the responsible thing to do, particularly in an inflationary crisis. So I think he'll have a fairly clear message. And I think if I was putting money on this, I'd say Rishi Sunak is the person that his rivals will have to stop. But as we all know, favourite doesn't normally normally win. And these things are incredibly unpredictable. And finally, Robert, at this early stage in the contest, since we're so good at predictions on this podcast, who is your bet to be the next UK Prime Minister? I think I've done all right on predictions so far. Um, I, I, I have to be honest with you, I really wouldn't put any money on this now. I just don't feel clear enough in my own head who it's going to go for. I think Rishi Sunak is a decent bet. I still think Nadim Zahar is a decent bet. And I think Truss and Wallace have a shot. But Lyra, seriously, it's I couldn't call it yet. 
And George, obviously, at this stage, will go more into the full contest in next week's podcast. But as well as Zahawi and Sadat, we're also going to have, obviously, Liz Truss is expected to run, Sajid Javid, Ben Wallace, Jeremy Hunt, even Steve Baker. It really is going to be a cast of thousands. Is there anyone we should look for in that list of people who you think could be particularly interesting beyond those two we've mentioned? Well, I think we said all our predictions are going to be taken with a large pinch of salt because I was from remember last week, we were both predicting that Boris Johnson would carry on as leader, whereas Robert very perspicaciously said that he wouldn't. So who are that lot? I think Tom Tugendhat's got a certain amount of stardust, so I think probably keep an eye on him. I've, I'm a bit sceptical about whether Liz Truss will make it on the shortlist of two because I'm not sure she has the parliamentary support. Ben Wallace is a fascinating one, isn't he? The Tories love someone in uniform. He's a former army officer. He hasn't confirmed yet beyond any doubt that he's going to stand. But if he does stand, you know, he will definitely be someone you have to watch. And finally, Hannah, anyone you're going to be watching out for that long list of potential candidates? I'm just thinking that uh, it's the people who've uh, up until this point been in cabinet and haven't had much of a chance to set out their stall are the ones we're going to have to see, A, whether they stand, as you've been saying, with people like Ben Wallace, and B, when they actually start to to talk about their prospectus uh, for being prime minister, how much support there actually is in there. And we've got to remember that the, the contest is also about people angling for cabinet positions and roles. So some of those people who are putting their names forward don't themselves think they have a serious chance, but they're hoping to be able at some point to lend their supporters to somebody who ends up winning uh, and then securing their own political future. Well, George, Robert and Hannah, thank you so much for this bumper episode of Payne's Politics. It's been quite the week. I really appreciate your time. And we'll be back next week to start diving into that leadership contest and all the pitches from that host of candidates. If you enjoyed this podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You know where to find us or the usual places to get episodes as soon as they're released. We also like positive reviews and nice ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next week, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.